Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. If your everyday routine looks like mine used to, it includes some bloating and gas, trouble losing weight, digestive issues, and probably microbial imbalances. When I learned that my gut microbiome was directly linked to all that stuff going on, I knew I had to do something, but it was hard to know what to do. And that's how I found out about Viome and the Viome Full Body Intelligence Test. Viome stands out because it uses gene expression analysis, which is RNA, instead of DNA to figure out what my body needs. They even use information they learn about you to create 100% custom formulated supplements and personalized probiotics just for you. Viome gave me the information I needed to really upgrade my health. I've known the team at Viome for almost 10 years and worked with them on their recommendations. It's real science. Now, you can give it a try, too. Go to Viome.com slash Dave and save $110 on the full body intelligence test. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's cool fact of the day is that it takes about three or four years for a coffee tree to mature and start producing fruit. And once it starts flowering, it'll only produce about a pound of green coffee a year, depending on region and altitude and soil and all that. And it takes between three and 4,000 coffee beans to create a single bag of delicious coffee. So coffee is actually a pretty rare, special commodity, but you already knew that because you listen to this podcast. Fasting. It's one of the best biohacks because there are so many benefits to your body and it doesn't even cost anything. Fasting can help you live longer, increase your brain power, and even turn back your biological age because it induces something called autophagy. Autophagy swaps out old or damaged parts of your cells with fresh new ones. There is now an awesome product called Spermidine Life that actually tricks your body into thinking it's fasting, which triggers autophagy without any actual fasting required. Spermidine Life is extracted from non-GMO plants and it's super clean. Fast smarter, not harder. Add Spermidine Life to your stack today, whether or not you practice intermittent fasting. Go to spermidinelife.us, use code ASPRI25 for 25% off your first purchase. Today's guest is someone special. Dan Cox has been involved in just about every aspect of the coffee industry for more than 30 years. And he's been on TV countless times talking about consumer trends, pricing, product handling, He's also one of the few people on the planet you can go to for coffee legal matters and is actually part of coffee lawsuits when they need a legal consultant. He's also been a three-term president of the Specialty Association of America for coffee. And the Specialty Coffee Association of America called a man of the year even. So if you were to basically sum it up in just one sentence, Dan, is it fair to say that you're old school coffee mafia? Is that accurate? 
I'm uh, considered old school, certainly. Um, but I hang out with a, a, a clan of notorious uh, coffee uh, aficionados that <clears throat> really believe this is still a pretty special product and that we're all pretty passionate about it. Since uh, I have three companions that we've traveled to 19 different countries together and countless uh, plantations and co-ops. So I still really like what I do. I'm very fortunate. I love what I do. Um, I'm considered at the top of my game, but candidly, I don't believe there is such a thing as an expert. There's always something new to learn. And sometimes I hear these outlandish claims that I go, at first I say, no way. And yet, as I look deeper, there's always possibilities of something new on the horizons and things happening that make this still an incredibly cool occupation to work in. Coffee's changed enormously over the past 30 or so years. And it's uh, it's fascinating because you were there since the first Starbucks opened. Essentially, you, you were in, involved with coffee from that time frame, right? Yeah, I, I was really lucky. Um, in the United States, coffee has been a mature product since really, you know, right after the Revolutionary War. Um, in the early 1900s, uh, turn of the century, every town in the USA had a small coffee roaster. That pretty much ended with the emergence of cans, coffee, which had long shelf lives, and number two, the emergence of supermarkets where people would go into one store to buy baked goods and coffees and the other stuff you can get into a supermarket. And that stayed pretty um, flat. Our high point in coffee consumption in the United States was 1964, where about 76% of the people drank 3.2 cups of coffee per day. And then it died. It started going backwards because of the emergence of sodas and the great marketing that the soda companies picked up. So, And the, uh, the coffee industry pretty much stuck with trying to attract existing coffee drinkers to change to their brand instead of enticing new coffee entrants into the industry, which would be the, the teenagers. Starbucks came along, and, and they also introduced a species called Robustas to, um, to create price wars. So wait, consequently— wait, Starbucks didn't introduce Robusta. That was no, just the no, general no, no. coffee industry. Just okay, Yeah. Cool. But the, the coffee industry in the late, uh, in the late 60s decided to uh, fight the price wars. So you had the Maxwell House, the Crafts, the, the Folgers, and they knew that people would come into a supermarket to buy a pound of coffee a week. So whatever they put on deal, they didn't feel there was a lot of loyalty in the brands. And so in order to reduce prices, one of the easiest things was to do was to reduce cost of goods. And the number one cost of goods was the Arabica. And so they introduced Robusta beans. And if you do it slowly over time, it won't be nearly as uh, noticeable. And so the rise of great marketing and sodas, the decline of great coffee meant that the industry was going backwards. Around the late 70s, early 80s, the emergence of Pete's Coffee Company in the West Coast, a great company based out of Oakland, California and Berkeley, California. He was really the instigator. Um, and then uh, Starbucks picked up and Starbucks did a great job of making coffee cool making it a cool occasion, making yeah. it hip, having, um, although um, I laugh because Starbucks is probably the number one or two user of milk products in the United States. <laughs> the uh, Getting a black cup of coffee at Starbucks is actually kind of hard. <laughs> People use a lot of additives. And then in my old stomping grounds, I was the first employee at a place called Green Mountain Coffee Roasters, which we started in, 98, in 1981. No. No, that, that's ginormous. Just so people know, Green Coffee Mountain Roasters is a billion-dollar coffee company, right? 
It's actually five million. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah. number one there. That's phenomenal. So, what what's the latest uh, sort of what what is third wave coffee and how is Starbucks different than third wave coffee and what's the Dunkin' Donuts Starbucks thing? So, give me a little bit more and give people listening kind of an understanding of like the amazing business of coffee. Well, the third wave is is now being s- split into two directions, um, and it's pretty pretty interesting because. <clears throat> Starbucks is uh, essentially um, looking for all of their growth to be overseas, international, and pretty much Asia. They are a- very Asia-oriented right now. Are you over there a lot, Dan? Do you see what they're doing in Asia? I don't go there, but I am very rec- cognizant of what they're doing over there and their plans. It's nuts. Um, when you walk it, down any street in a big city, there's more Starbucks there than in New York City, I swear. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, in Asia, uh, uh, you know, a normal city for them can be four or five million. Um, so uh, over here, four or five million um, person city is, is is Chicago. So they have their their market tiers are so much greater than ours. So Starbucks feels they've got the United States covered pretty much on two two fronts: retail in their own stores and retail in the supermarkets. They'll continue to make some splash, but re- reality is. Um, they're going overseas. Dunkin' Donuts, which is a pretty interesting uh, um, East Coast consumer, East Coast retailer, they've got about 6,000 stores, of which about 5,200 of them are east of the Mississippi. So most people on the West Coast really don't know too much about Dunkin' Donuts. The other big player, of course, is McDonald's. McDonald's with 31,000 locations. They decided two years or three years ago to get in, get more serious about coffee, and they've done a pretty good job elevating mainly through uh, price and a better quality product that a um, uh, dollar value. Um, their biggest product is their cafe frozen coffee drink, and boy, that is going really well for them. So they're doing really well. So, so the trick to selling a lot of coffee is sell a lot of milk and a lot of sugar. Well, that's uh, we are a, a fat, <laughs> cold, sugar-based society. As if I was to okay, what are the three big things? We love fat, we love sugar, and we love cold and portion and and then distribution. So hence sodas uh, um, and any product that has a lot of fat in it. The other part, so the third wave now is the small stores, the blue bottles, the four barrels, the uh, people that want to get into making coffee literally dripped by the cup, individual. What trend that they're breaking, which is unusual, is we are so convenience-oriented, drive-through, time-oriented, that we live in the era of, of blind speed. The shorter, the better. So in a traditional takeout, uh, drive-through um, scenarios, whether it's a Wendy's or a McDonald's, 90 seconds is the goal. From the time you order to the time you drive away, they want to do that in 90 seconds. That's pretty darn quick. A t- uh, minute and 20 is uh, the next one. So to go into a store like Blue Bottle or Four Barrel, and I love Four Barrel in the in the uh, Bay Area. The one, the you one go- out of Valencia, the one there? Yes. I, I used to work a block away from there, yeah. and I, I know Tal, the head roaster there. I, yeah. I mean, I've written about Four Barrel, too. It, it's, a, it's a great roaster and a, and a cool environment, too. It's, it's an amazing. When I was there last spring, and I, I don't really try to sharpshoot people, um, and the good news is nobody knows who the hell I am, and that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, when I go in and I'll talk to their their server, whether he's a barista or just somebody, Hannon, and I'll ask him a few questions. And in this case, they were serving three different Kenyan coffees. 
and I asked him to describe the difference between the three. And this guy was probably in his mid-30s. He was really good at that. So I was impressed that he knew the regions and he knew the differentiations between the Kiryanagin from one area. And I said, you know, this somebody's doing some pretty good education there. But the other thing is it takes three minutes. You place your order, yeah. you go get a seat, they either bring it out to you or you come back. So it's creating the scene of coffee's meant to take time when you come here, you're going to spend three to five bucks on a cup and you're going to really enjoy it, but it's going to take time. The exact opposite in the third wave that we see happening in the, happening in the supermarkets is single cup coffee dominated by the Keurig brand. Yep. And um, this is amazing. None of us saw this coming. So single cup has been around for at least 25 years. But it was so poorly executed when it first entered. Um, we had Senseo, we've had Pods, um, and uh, they were a disaster because one, the machines weren't very reliable, and two, the product wasn't very reliable. Keurig comes along, and the first three years they bleed red ink trying to figure out how to make this thing uh, work. They started out in the office coffee industry, switched over to retail, and it's now uh, holds first four of the top 10 selling coffee brewers in the United States are Keurig. And out of the top 10, they hold six positions out of the top 10. So that's why I wanted to offer a cartridge that could work in a Keurig machine. And oh man, the complexity of doing that, unless you're some billion dollar company, it is really hard. And we, we finally did it, but it, it was, you know, a, an 18 month undertaking in order to, to try and make that happen. Um, people forget that um, Green Mountain has 70 people in their R&D. They have uh, NASA engineers down in their Massachusetts headquarters, and they are constantly looking at making this better. Their, the old complaint was the coffee never tasted strong enough. And strength in this, in this situation had a relationship to um, the amount of coffee you could physically get into a cup, right. the temperature, the grind, and the time. And so they initially had nine grams for a 30-second brew cycle. Then they went to 11 grams. Then they changed the cup in the view cup to 15 grams. That was a good so move. It was a good move. Um, it's saddled with the fact that um, environmentally, all of these things are a disaster. And they will <laughs> fully admit that um, a pound of coffee in a, in a bag, a one-pound bag, um, you know, one bag, and you get about 50 to 60 cups out of it. In, in K-Cups, you get about 50 or 60 individual capsules that have to be thrown away. And until recently, were not recyclable. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the industry recognized this is a disaster environmental. That, that was one of my problems. Uh, the ones that I make are entirely recyclable. And yeah. that was part of the 18-month challenge because I just don't want to make more trash than I have to. I don't think it's, it's good for the world, right? Oh, it's, it's a disaster. It's in, in here in little old Vermont, and I think there are like three or four places in the United States, uh, Boulder, Colorado, Berkeley, California, Palo Alto, California, and Burlington, Vermont, uh, Portland, Oregon, to a degree. We consider ourselves in the leading edge <laughs> of environmental concerns, and yeah. here we are. I mean, you try to open a land a landfill in Vermont, good luck. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, we And yet, uh, the company realized we got to do something about this. And so they've been struggling with this for years and they've got one solution, but it's not near there yet. It, is it true that they're going to partner with the eco homes people to fill the walls of homes with old cartridges? 
I'd, I'd, listen, <laughs> if you could put it in tires, I'd be happy. I don't I care. But if you could make home insulation, uh, I think they'd be open to anything we could do. The new capsules are, uh, the new K-cups are made with pet number five plastic. And out of the out of the view, so you, there's a tearaway feature where you tear the lid and the filter comes off, and then the the cup itself can be recycled. But you have to do that also when the coffee has cooled. So if you take it right out of the right out of the brewer and you try to do it, there's a good chance it's gonna it's gonna rip and tear, and you're gonna coffee ground. So you got to wait a minute. And again, going back to our nature, we are not a uh, a culture that that revels in um, in things that take time. Right. We are speed oriented and we're speed food oriented, but it's a whole other story. And the thing that I find interesting is you used to walk down a, a supermarket aisle and there'd be a sign that said coffee. And when you got in that coffee aisle, there'd be cans of coffee. Then there'd be canisters or bins of whole bean coffee. And then there are one pound bags of coffee. Now you're going down and you're actually seeing boxes of coffee. And within the box of coffee are these single, um, single capsules and you're seeing whole beans uh, within five years you will not even see whole bean bulk coffee line priced in any supermarket in the united states those are wow. those those are dying quickly um one pound bags um of ground coffee it used to be just whole bean but ground coffee is now taking over and cans are going by the way for example folgers in about 10 years ago invested tons of money in their new can it's a plastic. It looks like a paint can for cripe sakes. They, uh, it I, is Folgers, this, I mean. This, this is what <laughs> for $3 million worth of design get you. Uh, so people can't wait to empty it out the coffee so they can use it as a paint can. But um, uh, they made the switch recently and said all of their focus is going to be on single cup performance. And wow. so this is this huge deal. Huge deal. Craft is now getting into it. So um, most of us uh, never saw this coming. And the other thing about Americans, which I love to disparage our, uh, our fellow citizens, is that we, first of all, we, no matter how much you try to force us, we refuse to learn the metric system. Yeah. It's just, it's foreign to us. It feels foreign to us. We don't like it. It's like learning and French or something. It's, it's absolutely something that doesn't <laughs> belong in the United States, even though it's the language of science and it's worldwide, it, it doesn't matter to us. So uh, my, my point is, People have no idea that 454 grams equals a pound of coffee. And, and thank God, because if they could ever figure out the math on what these capsules cost um, <laughs> by the pound, you would say there's no way. But if you say, well, it's only 60 cents a cup. Well, I can afford 60 cents a cup if I go out to my local retailer. It's going to be between $1 and $3. What a steal. And then when you go, wait a second, how many cups do I get in a pound? My God, that's 40 to $60 a pound. For coffee, it is and, is more expensive. And the the joke of all of them is the the number one product for expense wise in the market is Starbucks Via um, soluble coffee in a stick. And from my um, perspective, it is the best soluble coffee on the market today. And I have tested this well over fifty times. And it's got um, regular soluble coffee done very well from Colombia primarily, and it's mixed in with some about 15% micro fine ground coffee, which actually gives it some mouthfeel and some fragrance. It costs a buck and there's three ounces, there's three grams in it. So if you do wow. the math real quickly, you go, let me see, 454 divided by three is 151, 151 times one. Are you telling me this stuff costs $151 a pound? And the answer is 
You betcha. How many pounds of coffee does it take, or how many grams of coffee does it take to make one gram of solubilized coffee? It's about a three to one ratio. Okay, got it. About a, about a so, three to one ratio. So, so they're cost of goods, as, as I figured out, all in, uh, depending on what the market is in any given day, they may have uh, maybe, and depending on how much they want to amortize their uh, research, maybe they got 10 bucks of wow. cost of goods into that. And they're selling it for 151 no wonder they advertise the heck out of this. Of course. So that's a super high margin product. Now, yeah. now there are studies uh, looking at what's in solubilized coffee. And uh, the ones that I'm familiar with that are looking specifically at mold toxins in coffee, given that that's an area where I've spent a lot of time doing research, um, show that on average, there's twice as many mold toxins in the average instant coffee. Have you looked into that at all? No, I haven't looked into that st that statistic. Um, uh, mycotoxins in the um, plant world is is ev they're everywhere. Yeah, they're they absolutely. And you can't get rid everywhere. of them, right? You can try to mitigate them mm -hmm. um, if, as best as possible. The first thing is to try to identify them and identify the ones that can really do damage. And is it obvious, or is it something we have to dig deeper in? But there are some there are some big offenders. And then there are a lot of lesser ones. But the reality is they're everywhere. Um, so the, the, the question is, what is their level of toxicity and can we do anything about it? And that's important. So the first thing you'd like to do is eliminate them oh, if yeah. possible. Now, if you can't eliminate them, how can you best control them? And that starts with a rigorous program of testing. So if we look at something like ochratoxin A, <clears throat> yep. which is which is a, um, a pathogen, and it's formed um, uh, on the mold um, and the fungus of uh, lots of different products, but coffee um, is, can, can be one of them, and especially coffee from uh, Indonesia or coffee that's been on the water a long time from where it's produced to where it's consumed. So when we buy coffee from Indonesia, it's on the water at least six weeks eight weeks and during that time it can be in a, in a container that's closed but depending on and coffee coffee's hydroscopic so it can pick up moisture and with moisture you get mold um, with mold can come um, aquatoxin you can't have aquatoxin without mold but you can have mold without aquatoxin so you have to test it and in in Europe, it's regulated by the equivalent of the FDA in Europe in the United States it's not regulated and the problem with the ochratoxin is it's in lots of different things besides just coffee, but it's not hom homogenous. Right. And so you have to do more than just test one bag. You have to, and a, and a container has, depending on the size of the container, between 250 and 300 bags per container. So between 38,000 and 40, 42,000 pounds per container, you can have hot spots within that. And... Most roasters do not want to take the time or the expense to do proper testing. Um, there is some thought that it gets roasted out at the super high temperatures, and the answer is that's not true. Um, <laughs> Hold on a second. I'm, there's always people saying, ah, the heat destroys mold. Doesn't it kill the mold? I mean, I know the answer to this, but tell people as a 30-year coffee veteran, what's the deal here? Uh, Alcrotoxin A is a stable compound, yes. like many things. <laughs> it's stable, which means unless you get to super high temperatures, and super high temperatures are about a thousand plus degrees. Anything less than that <clears throat> is just considered, you know, hot. And, and that's but, what Starbucks uses on their dark roast, right? Is a thousand degrees? 
Oh yeah, at least maybe two thousand. <laughs> you know, to get that charred effect, you can't do it easily. No, no, no offense, Starbucks, Starbucks. We love you. <laughs> no, no, Starbucks. Like, uh, actually, the darkest roasted coffee in the United States is Pete's. Right. Um, they they roast it slightly darker, but the range is traditionally three seventy five to four hundred fifty degrees Fahrenheit. That is the range, and then you got to throw in um, the time it takes, anywhere between a fifteen and twenty minute roast. Then you have to work uh, work in what's the moisture content of the coffee as it's coming in. Moisture content comes. There's about four or five variables, but if uh, as someone said, you know, the average roast temperature of coffee is four hundred degrees for fifteen minutes. For a two-pound, two-bag roast of uh, 350 pounds, I'd say that's a pretty good generality. But at those temperatures, things are created. Um, acrylamides can be created, um, but they can't be destroyed. So you can't destroy aquatoxin A, furin, or some of the other mycotoxins at this temperature. You, you can't, it can't be done. So, so the, spores, the spores are dead, but the poison left by the mold that made the spores is not dead. Well, it was never alive, but it's still right. present and still biologically active. Okay. Yes. And, and the, the other issue is because um, technology allows us to get further and further into the DNA of anything, we can see things that used to be par- measured in parts per thousand, parts per million, parts per billion. Now we're into parts per trillion. But you do have to put that into the old... Um, uh, paralysis, uh, paracelsis adage is that the, the poison is in the dosage. Yeah. And I truly believe in that. And so if, uh, if I was to look at my food source and say, my God, almost everything I eat has the potential <laughs> to be toxic, I would go, you're right. So let's yeah. just calm down right. and figure out what we need to test, what's reasonable and what's not reasonable. So when People come up and they figure out what I do and they say, well, God, I drink 10 cups of coffee a day. And I go, well, that's your problem. You're not impressing me because (laughs) you can consume so much coffee. And is the issue the coffee or is the issue the caffeine? Mm -hmm. Caffeine, again, is another one of these stable compounds. People think the coffee is roasted darker, so it has less caffeine because it's been roasted out. Fundamentally, absolutely not true not true. It's a stable compound. It's the same amount than you began with, than you ended with. No difference. Now, espresso is a little bit different only because the throw weight is different. So you have a very, you know, an espresso, the espresso you just drank looked like it was about two ounces. Yep. So we drink about one and a half to two ounces of espresso, and that could have um, 80 to 100 milliliters of caffeine, Whereas an eight to 10 ounce drink of regular coffee may have 100 to 150. So because it's so highly concentrated, it has more caffeine just because it uses more coffee. But it does not have more caffeine by the pound. It's the same amount. So people, but sometimes people also think because it tastes stronger, it has more caffeine. Caffeine, for the most part, is tasteless and odorless until you get it in its purest form. you may not know the answer to this, and I don't know know the answer to it. I've always noticed that an espresso, I feel it before. Like if I chugged an espresso and I chugged a, a room temperature black coffee or something, I'll feel the espresso speed my mind up faster than the coffee. And I believe it's because the coffee essential oils are still intact and they help to escort the caffeine and some of the other phytochemicals into the brain better. Like that fat plus caffeine has a different effect than just caffeine. Have you seen anything about that? Is that, is that part of yes. your... Yes. 
Okay. No, no, that's absolutely true. Um, caffeine is a phenomenal carrier of all sorts of things. And it also gives a lot of people a sense of alertness, a slight sense of energy. And most of the studies I've looked at um, feel that the number one reason people drink coffee in the morning is for the caffeine. It's not necessarily for the taste of the coffee. So when you see it used in the pharmaceutical industry, specifically medicines like aspirin, it's not because... Um, the caffeine they feel is necessarily a great additive. What it is is a great carrier, and it gets the other essential ingredients in the medication to you very quickly. Just like the old uh, product DMSO. I don't know if you ever yeah. knew what that. Uh, yeah, it was used. Yeah, it was used in horses for recovery of horses. Right. Well, that stuff you'd rub some of that on your shoulder, and within like ten seconds your breath would really smell differently. And researchers said, hmm, how can that work so fast? We better look at this because it could be a great carrier for other things. So the, the pharmaceutical industry, obviously the soda industry, is the number one user of caffeine in the world's uh, pharmaceutical soda industry because it has a slight amount of upliftingness to it and energizing. Certainly in coffee producing countries now, especially in Brazil, they're using cafe lattes and cafe au lait for children in elementary school because it makes them more alert and they actually are proven to be better testers. Up here, you would think, oh, yeah, this is just a coffee guy trying to sell more coffee. I I posted on Facebook a picture of my son drinking two ounces of Bulletproof coffee made with my mold toxin tested beans plus the grass-fed butter and the brain octane oil. And my kids get it every morning. They they get about, about an ounce or two. And you know what? They feel great. It makes it makes them happy. They're not addicted. They don't go hyper. They they're just calm and focused and happy. And I, I don't think I'm harming them. In fact, I know I'm. No, not. and I, and I don't think they're getting shorter. They're not turning browner, <laughs> and uh, and they're not hyper running around beating on each other. No, um, I find that uh, in the studies, and I see studies all the time that the um, I think the publicity has turned the corner to where there are more positive attributes to um, moderation in coffee than negative ones. There's yeah. certainly still some negative ones, but the industry is starting to say, hey, wait a second, everything from colorectal cancer, breast cancer, um, Alzheimer's, there's some stuff going on here that we need to look at closer. So um, I'd have no problem. I, my daughter's an adult now, but when she started drinking coffee when she was around 10, um, I think, first of all, I think she was slightly influenced by my wife and I. <laughs> yeah. But secondly, um, she liked it. She just plain liked it. And she liked the taste of it. I didn't think yeah. I'd, I would give my kids coffee until they're older. But when my daughter was one, uh, I said, well, I'll give her black coffee because she was reaching for my cup. And, and I figured you know, she'll make a face. And, and she, I had to fight her to get the cup back. Uh, they, well, that's a just, little unusual. Yeah, I was surprised. But they've just been like that. So, you know, a couple tablespoons, I'm, I think it's fine. If your child doesn't like it, they're going to tell you real fast. They're just going to push away and say, no way, get it out of my face. If they do like it, usually I'll go back to um, put some milk in it. And um, you don't have to go crazy with sugar. But usually the first sip, if it's somewhat diluted with some milk, it uh, certainly should be palatable. So let's let's go back to you. You said that coffee has some positive things. My own research and, and experience uh, has shown me that when I look at the list of negative aspects of coffee and I look at the list of negative aspects of mold toxins that are commonly present in coffee, there's a shocking overlap there. That when I experience 
coffee that is uh, that is tested to be extremely low like you said there's you know there's a part per gazillion measure that i'm sure there's you know one of those in any coffee bean right because there's so many parts but when i drink exceptionally low mycotoxin coffee uh mm. i feel different and i even have did a little study with uh, executive function comparing two different coffees and showed that there was a difference in executive function between the two you mentioned earlier the european standards so they test using probably not the most accurate test on earth, but they, they test for ochratoxin A, which is one of the, the 27 yeah. different things that I look at in, um, in the upgraded coffee beans. But they, they test for that and they say, all right, this coffee isn't up to European standards. And what is the current European standard in parts per billion? Do you remember off the top of your head? It's either three or five parts. Okay, cool. Um, my research says it's five and it used to be eight, but there it does change occasionally and I don't yeah. always get the latest update right away. So five parts per billion, very small. Okay, so there's a container load of coffee. They tested it. It didn't make it. Where would it be tested in the coffee supply chain? This is at a, a broker. Would it be tested before it's shipped from the source country? Like, how does well, that I mean, the the best way to test it would be begin uh, because mold can um, uh, accumulate and start in route, depending on where the coffee's coming from. Is you want to test it as it left the port, and you want to test it when it arrives. Importers will only do what they're asked to do, and then they're going to try for the life of it to pass that cost on to the roaster. So if the roaster demands it, the importer has two choices. Okay, I'll test it, but I'm going to charge it for the test. Or no, I don't want to go through the aggravation of testing it. You're not big enough for me to do this and eat it myself. But in theory, you'd want to test it just as it uh, was loaded onto the ship, mm -hmm. and then you want to test it again depending on the length of travel on water once it got there. But most roasters, I mean, the most common way of testing ochratoxins is through the use of what's called a fluorimeter because it can be fluorescent. We have it in our labs. We have the capability of testing this. It truly is a pain in the neck test to do. Yeah. It, oh, my God. You have, to, you have to extract from green coffee. Grinding green coffee is like grinding mustard seeds. All it does is gum up your grinder. So um, you have to freeze it. To begin with, so if you got some liquid nitrogen around, that works really well. But not a whole lot of uh, people have that. So we freeze the coffee, which makes the cell structure brittle, and then we grind it. And then we have to go through at least six phases of filtering it till we, we finally get about uh, two or three mils of this colorless liquid that we put into a fluorometer. And then, then 30 seconds later, we get a result. So it's about 65 minutes of prep for a 30-second test. And that can cost anywhere between $150 to $300 to do it. And until you automate it, um, it's very labor-intensive. Now, that test, uh, when you're doing it, what's the sensitivity of it? Very sensitive. Uh, I think the, the thing, if you're really going to look at this, um, you want to go right back to the source. And you want to figure out how can we create conditions that these things won't uh, um, how can we grow this stuff that will that will lessen lessen the chance of it forming? You're starting to sound kind of like the bulletproof process there. Yeah, it's 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 tricky. It's really yeah. tricky. But there, you know, there are niches for everything. I mean, I look at now, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago, the organic system, you know, the organic uh, supply, and food to farm a farmer to table now. 
Um, the, so we pay more for organic foods if we can have assuredness that it really is organic. We like buying local now. So where you are, there's a lot of opportunities. But the thing that's really amazed me is why are our systems so sensitive to um, gluten all of a sudden? So now we go down a supermarket and there are aisles of gluten-free products. What's going on here? I, I think I have a pretty good theory on that one. Gluten cross-reacts with, funny enough, toxic molds. And we changed our soil bacteria about 30 years ago by spraying a potent mutagen on it. So we've been having these aspergillus, mostly, soil microbes that are typically harmless that have become less harmless that have also moved into our homes because they live basically anytime there's moisture in the home. They produce immune-stimulating molecules that have the same eight amino acid sequence that's present in gluten and casein. And I believe that's one of the underlying reasons. It's not the only one, but it's one of the underlying reasons that we're seeing this explosion. And I experienced it myself in, in Palo Alto. You know, there was a, a, a toxic mold growing behind a dishwasher uh, in a place where I was staying. And when I got exposed to that, my relatively minor gluten allergies just exploded. And the same thing happened to my wife. So it, it's a, a known thing. It's just one of those complex systems out there. And I'm a canary for toxic mold. And that's why when I drink a cup of coffee, I can tell you if it's got, I've had a cup of excellence coffee that tasted amazing. It was, you know, blissful and orgasmic, but 20 minutes later, I'm like, yep, there's, there's mold toxins. There's something in there. Yeah. Well, I'm just amazed that the industry led by the big industry leaders, the, the Kellogg's and the general foods of the world, general mills of the world have realized that this segment of the population is asking for it. So we better pay attention. So my wife is, is, uh, a gluten sensitive. And so consequently we go to a couple of health food stores and she goes down that aisle and now there are gluten free pizzas. I, I have some so, bad news for you, Dan. Yeah. Have you seen the studies about coffee cross-reacting with gluten? No. Yeah. There's actually a, a immune it's, it's proven by one lab in one case, but get this, they used cheap instant coffee. And there are a ton of people who don't drink any coffee other than upgraded coffee because they react to it. I'm the same way. But when they drink a coffee that's tested for molds, they aren't getting the, the basically the gut problems that they're getting from normal right. coffee. And that can be a trigger for uh, immune sensitivity. So if you're like the celiac or Crohn side of things, the quality of the coffee you're drinking is a factor. In you betcha. How you react. So I don't know if uh, if your wife has paid attention to whether coffee is triggering any gluten allergies in her or whether it's triggering symptoms of gluten allergies, but it's worth noticing. Well, she switched years ago to decaf and um, she's a diehard two, di two cup a day decaf drinker. And um, she drinks the best decaf on the market that she can find. And um, I, I, she I need seems to ship to be her fine. some of I need to ship her some of mine if she hasn't tried it. Uh, I, I didn't realize that she was doing that because I, I, w w I mean, what is the best one that you know of? Because I'll tell you, I had, I always get sick when I drink decaf coffee because they use low quality beans because they know they're ruining them anyway. So you found a super high quality one. If anyone on earth would know. There are, um, you have to look, you have to look, um, far and wide to find them. And they're usually small micro roasters that have are willing to pay a lot more for coffee. Yeah. Um, I find if you were the big brand, the one that's the most common right now that I think does a pretty good job, Nespresso Decaf does a really good job. No kidding, Nespresso. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have, have predicted that. <laughs> and um, they, um, you know, it's a, it's a subsidiary of Nespresso um, and of, of Nestle. And so consequently, it's high, they're making a lot of money. 
So they do a pretty good job sourcing coffee, in terms uh, especially of, in for terms the of flavor. Or oh yeah, oh yeah, okay. yeah, I, yeah. They do. I would say, from a capsule standpoint, for dark roast, um, they're the leader in the field, as they should be because of taste, taste alone. So the Verissimo by Starbucks has been uh, less than successful. They're not selling very many of those machines. The Revo from Green Mountain Coffee is kind of dead in the water, not selling very many to make uh, espresso-based beverages. But Nespresso still leads the pack by far. And, and you find far. a consistent, high-quality, high-flavor decaf. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to ship you some of our, our decaf to try. Ship it away. The, the reason is that I take the original tested beans and our roasting is in Portland. We ship it over to Vancouver to do Swiss water process and ship it back. So it's a very short ship time because caffeine is also an antifungal agent in the coffee. Yeah. So it, it tends to be, in fact, I'll tell you, it's the only decaf that I don't react to. And I, I've. Do you, do you ship it over to the plant in uh, the Swiss water plant? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's only Frank, about six hours, right? Because yeah, Portland yeah. to Vancouver and back is easy. No, I, I went through that plant in um, September and I am very highly positive about the plant. I've been through the plant. I've seen it before and the after. I know the management. It's the real deal. I think yeah. they're probably one of the best decaffeinated plants in the world. They do a really nice job. That is amazingly validating because I, I don't have the experience to uh, to have looked at, at those at different plants like that. But they they impressed me with just the quality and the whole process. So um, I I wanted to make a decaf that not only tasted good, but also was very low in toxins because the studies uh, that I've come across where they look at levels of, of various toxins in decaf, not the ones that come from chemical decaffeination like the, the solvents, but actually ones from the fungal toxins, they're phenomenally higher because usually you throw robusta beans, you throw lower yeah. quality beans because you know you're ruining the beans by decaffeinating them, right? Well, they, um, you know, it's the old crap in, crap out. Yeah. Um, and so, so how, same thing with soluble coffee. If you're, soluble coffee for a lot of people, um, for many roasters said, well, it's like taking your car to the demolition derby. What's the point? So yeah. don't take a good car, take a crappy car. And I said, well, if you, you can't possibly have good tasting coffee if you start with bad beans. So now it's the process. Is, are there better ways of making decaffeinated coffee over the year? And the answer is yes. And the Swiss water people do it in small batches. And I think there's something to be said for that versus a continuous decaffeination process. And it really starts with the water. And the water that comes out of a decaffeination plant should be drinkable. It should be purified that much through the system that it can be recycled and drinkable. So when I've been to decaf plants in, in Switzerland, in Germany, in France, in Mexico, in the United States, and in Canada, and uh, that's the first thing I'll say is I want to see the water that comes out of the last batch, and I want to taste it. And if they won't allow me to do that, I know there's a problem. Wow. Okay, that's a pretty high standard. Yeah, they haven't cleaned it enough to be able to use it in the next batch. And it takes time and it takes money to do that. It takes a lot of money to do that, to constantly filter, filter, filter. Active carbonation, active carbon is the answer, but it's a lot of people just don't want to take the time. It, uh, it's funny you mentioned active carbon. If I'm in a situation where I'm going to drink uh, coffee that isn't mine, and it, like probably 90% of the time when I go out there, I, I can tell like my brain doesn't do the things I'm used to it doing when, when I do that. And yeah, I'm a delicate flower or whatever, but I, I, apparently other people have a, a slight reduction in mental capacity versus, uh, you know, say like feeling as, as bad as I would, but there's, they're noticing like they don't, 
have a dip in energy later. But I take um, the coconut charcoal capsules, uh, which is essentially, actually, it's almost identical to the carbon that's in those water filters, although it's a finer particle size. I take those if I know I'm going to be in a situation like a coffee tasting, I'm going down to Costa Rica um, to work on expanding the number of plantations who can do the, the pre, uh, pre-harvesting steps the way I'd like them done. And I know I'll be t- uh, tasting stuff that's not as clean as I want. So I'm going to be popping charcoal all day long to filter it in the stomach. <laughs> yeah. Carbon's a, uh, a very good catch-all for a lot of good stuff. So it might be thinking, well, I think I'll swallow a brick at a day. And I said, well, you know, that's not the worst thing in the world that can happen to you I, yeah, at I, all. Yeah, I manufacture it for internal yeah. use. It, it's just worth using it. And if I'm going to be drinking strange coffees, I will do that. And all right, one question, we talked earlier about this European coffee, you test it before it goes onto the boat, you test it when it comes off. So now we're somewhere at a port in Europe and we tested coffee and the coffee's bad. It doesn't meet European standards. What do they do with that coffee? Well, we don't like to talk about that. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> and, I, and I can't tell you exactly what happens because I don't live in Europe. But um, if it's written into the contract, and if I was a European roaster, I would write it into the contract. So the first thing the roaster would say is it's rejectable. And it's your obligation, importer, to replace it with like coffee without the toxins, obviously. So then the importer has to figure out, what do I do with this? It's never going to be shipped back to the producing country. That's, that's laughable. Yeah. So now they have to sit there and say, okay, it got rejected because the, um, um, the level of whatever the, the mycotoxin is too high. Now, do I resell it to someone else? Do I retest it? Or do I just dump it? And because, um, and then there's transportation issues involved. So if they want to try to sell it to another roaster that doesn't have it in their contract, they can do that. That's the first avenue. Try to sell it to somebody who doesn't care about the mycotoxin. If that doesn't work, then they could sell it to other countries that don't have regulations. And in our country, that's called dumping. You're intentionally selling something to us that you know has a problem whether we have a regulation or not. And that's not really cool. That doesn't go that doesn't fly very well, even if it's sold at a discount. But there are many, many roasters that are, well, I would say, less than ethical. And if they have a chance to pick up something that is a lot less expensive, that's unregulated, they'll do it. It's very simple. They'll just do it. Is there any uh, is there any possibility that the companies with the coffee that they know has a problem in that country might not notify the buyer in the U.S. about the oh, problem? Of course they will. Of course they will. Okay. Because it's not regulated. Why would I intentionally yeah. tell you, oh, by the way, the coffee that you're buying was rejected in Belgium because it had an aquatoxin level too high when they're saying, well, these people don't care. Why would I even tell them? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And if you were at a U.S. company and you had even say internal standards, you could buy some higher toxin coffee for less and have some nominally lower toxin, mix them all up to get the average parts per billion down. Is yeah, that I mean, done? it's, I don't think it's being done. Um, I'm obviously not at the, um, at the large roasters. I don't think that's being done intentionally, but I have yeah. no proof. Um, there's a lot of, there are a lot of crooks out there for yeah. that way, but that's why I think dealing with people that are incredibly reputable is the, is the rule of day, but the coffee is incredibly fraudulent. Um, for example, there is more Jamaican blue mountain coffee sold every year than is grown. There is more Colombian coffee, hundred percent Colombian coffee sold every year than is grown. 
So people, same thing with Kona coffee. So there are a lot of unscrupulous people. The, the fish, come on. The fish industry <laughs> is rife with this right now. You go and you think you're buying Chilean sea bass, good luck. So um, we are very open to, we're very gullible. Um, and so in this case, you've got to know your retailer and you've got to ask your retailer to back it up with some you know, simple requests. We don't want to bust your chops too much, but if you're saying this is this, I need to see your um, authenticity. Wine, old wine. Is, I just finished reading the book, The, Vintner, uh, the Billionaire's Vinegar. It's a fantastic story about how, how these people paid zillions of dollars for old bottles of Jeffersonian wine that were never tested. And you wouldn't even know, and most people don't even want to open the bottle anyways. But what's the provenance? How do you check on the provenance for some of this stuff? Very difficult. Very, very difficult. And it turns out you're not just a coffee expert, right? You're a cigar guy and a wine guy as well, and a Harley guy and a Porsche yeah. guy. Like you, well, you, you kind of like the finer things in life, right? I got to the stage where I was very fortunate that I had the ability to make some uh, some choices and how I want to spend my time and who I want to spend my time with. And um, cigars and coffee, uh, it's a natural. So when the cigar craze of 1990 hit, I was uh, um, among the first to really get involved in that. And Marvin Schenken at Schenken Communications has done a wonderful job with Cigar Aficionado. And I did a lot of, did a lot of uh, coffee tastings with that magazine. Wine, I started a wine club with two other guys in the late 80s. And I would say I'm a sophomore, but I'm a pretty educated sophomore. Uh, I just saw the, the video SOMM, S-O-M-M, which is one of the best videos on how difficult it is to become a master sommelier. And so I, I love wines. Um, I'm trying to teach my daughter the difference between really good wine and just average wine. So wine will be a lifelong passion. A little bit of speed, yeah. I, uh, in, in that, when I got divorced, um, the first thing I did after my divorce was I went out and bought a motorcycle. <laughs> so, and I had uh, I had 25 very good years of that, and I I still do one trip a year with the guys. And we I sold my bike about 10 years ago, and I bought a Porsche. So I moved up and do. The, the four wheels, but uh, a bunch of us I go out with, uh, you know, Ben and Jerry are good friends of mine, and a bunch of other business owners, and we do one trip a year. We pick a part of the United States that we haven't been to. We fly out there. We rent bikes. So last year, we did the coast of Oregon. Oh, wow. Incredibly cool. Started in Portland, went all the way down to the coast to, to California, turned, came back in Crater Lake area, uh, Bend, end up in uh, Mount Hood. It was just incredible. So, But I think my motorcycle days are coming to uh, one trip a year, five, six days on a bike. It's about it for my age now. But the Porsches, you know, I could do this for a long time yet. When you're on a road trip like that, do you stop in small towns and drink coffee of questionable origin? <laughs> I, we stop and drink coffee, uh, but we try to find single chains. We cool. try to, I have to admit, I go in and within a minute, I can pretty much scope out if these yeah. people know what they're doing or not. Yeah. And um, it is fun. Uh, there are a few chains that I, you know, if I have to, I'll stick with. For example, I happen to be a fan of uh, Panera Bread, Caribou Coffee. They both, because I know a lot about where their coffee comes from, they do a pretty good job. Pete's, of course, does a fantastic job. But um, I'm, I'm looking for the, the four-barrel types. Yeah. Um, that's my, my pride and joy is to find those little, little places in the middle of nowhere that take it pretty seriously. The odds of getting a, a cup of coffee that won't basically knock me out the way a lot of coffee does 
are higher at those places. And I, I read a blog post once that said, you, know, you walk in the door and count piercings and tattoos and the more of them you find, the better your odds. It, is that accurate? <laughs> no, I would say, no, I would say that's an, that's a really good tale, but uh, I would not say that that's necessarily an indicator of good coffee. It might be a certain type of cult or craft, yeah. but uh, yeah, I know. I don't, I don't necessarily subscribe to that theory. Uh, and it, it's fair not to, uh, because it's not always true. It depends on the part of the world, obviously. I do when I travel. I travel a lot. I, I brew my own. I, I bring the equipment and I do it um, because I just got used to feeling a certain way all the time. But uh, I will go into those places and sometimes I'll sample it, but I usually don't drink the whole cup because unless it feels right, I, I, I can tell you if it's going to knock me out. So, No, I agree with you that many times, um, especially in foreign countries, it's kind of sad that I will yeah. bring coffee with me to a coffee producing country because I know um, they export their best and they don't have the right brewing technology and equipment. And it's kind of sad. It's just kind of sad, but it happens all the time. I just came back yeah. from a little island in uh, the Caribbean called Culebra with my family. And this is a great family vacation. We ship coffee there before we get there. <laughs> And was, it's kind of weird, but that's what we do. I was on Roatan, uh, which is a similar region, yeah. coffee-growing part of the world. And I went on a coffee-buying expedition, not to buy coffee for Bulletproof, but just because I wanted a cup of coffee and I didn't have a grinder. I had my beans, but no way to grind them. Yeah. And uh, at the end of a whole day of riding around in a taxi and, and doing backroom deals, I didn't end up with any coffee that was drinkable. Like, In fact, it had sugar mixed in with it, and yes. it was instant. But I did buy a mortar and pestle, and I ground my own beans on the cruise ship later that night. It was terrible, but... <laughs> <laughs> the things we do for coffee, right? No, um, it's very common to see uh, a new line of uh, to-go coffee brewing and grinding equipment. It's from the AeroPress to these hand grinders, they're everywhere now. Yeah. Now, I have to apologize, Dave, but oh, it's time. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sign off by thank saying you. thank you very much for this opportunity. Let's keep talking. And uh, uh, it's, it's a joy to uh, be, be uh, a guest on your program. Have an awesome day. Thank you. Hi, it's Dave again. Thanks for listening to the 100th episode of the Bulletproof Executive Podcast. And thanks for making it the number one rated show on iTunes. I started this podcast with the same intention that I had when I started the Bulletproof blog itself, which was that I could offer a ton of free information that would help you supercharge your body, upgrade your brain, and live in a state of high performance. It took me about 20 years and $300,000 to learn how to do things that aren't supposed to be possible and then to use them to be a better entrepreneur, a better husband, a better father. And it's not really fair that I had the opportunity to spend that much money to learn these things. No one told me how to do it. And I thought if I shared the knowledge that I was lucky enough to come across, it might help other people. Since the show began over two years ago, I've heard from some of the world's leading experts on topics of mind, body, diet, and most recently, even coffee. And so have you. At the end of each show, I ask each guest a question. What are your top three recommendations for kicking more ass and being bulletproof every single day? In honor of Bulletproof Executive Radio's centennial episode, here are some of the best answers from our top podcast episodes. Thanks again, and please enjoy. And I look forward to seeing you on our 101st episode. All right. Number one, someone was asking me about this today. I was just on another interview. They're like, so why is eating well important? Deal with your nutrition. Like, be serious about it. Diet and nutrition. So following a ketogenic diet has actually been liberating in that it's been able to free up a lot of time for me. It's because 
it's necessary for everything that happens after that. Everything that you do with your body, the way that you think, the way that you perform, your health down the road, that the, the number one factor in that is eating well. Don't follow somebody else's diet, follow your own diet and do the, do the work that's required to figure out what that is, even though it does take longer than just following a cookie cutter approach and you, you will not be sorry because you'll have that for the rest of your life. You've got to sleep. You are not a special flower. When you don't sleep for long periods of time, we know what happens. You will implode. Uh, downtime is extremely important and a lot of people get so caught up in their jobs and don't take time, they don't take constructive, what I like to call creative downtime. So I would say sleep it would be number one if you want to kick butt because if you're not sleeping, you're not kicking butt almost certainly. Try to disconnect from time to time, take a walk every day. Everybody needs to have creative downtime you know, scheduled into their day in one form or another. Follow your desire, even when everyone else thinks you're crazy. Number one, you are never better than when you're challenged. That's one. Number two is expressing gratitude. Um, and then I would say that I think the key to happiness is staying curious through your entire life. Surrender to the things that you, um, you think that you shouldn't do, or that you think are bad or dirty. I think you should do them and, and see what you learn. Laugh a lot. Because at, at the end, you know, it, it's all it's all funny. It's all very funny. It's all a good, good joke. You know, drink, drink more coffee, drink wine, and drink scotch. Relax. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Life is grand. Now, the end of the day should be kind of a look back a review of all the positive things that happened. And so many people kind of obsess about the, you know, what they consider the failures and that's not very helpful. And so we want to essentially review everything that happens, recapitulate those experiences and just find the positive, the silver lining in everything that happened during the day. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.